Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the history of the American people since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Great War. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The World in 1913. Let us take a look at the map to see how imperialism had affected the world. As you can see, the British Empire is massive, ruling over their home islands, Egypt, Sudan, Kenya, South Africa, Rhodesia, India, Burma, Australia, and not to mention several islands. France dominated Algeria, French West Africa up to modern-day Chad, French Indochina, which is modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, while Germany was a new player in imperial politics, and they dominated German East Africa, modern-day Tanzania, and German Southwest Africa, modern-day Namibia, as well as Togoland and Cameroon. Because of these large colonial possessions, Europe's war will spill out across the globe, requiring the participation of colonized peoples to support and fight the war across the globe. Europe will be forced to lean on her colonies, and as a result of this global catastrophe, these oppressed people will begin to question the political conditions they live in. War will start the slow process of decolonization that ramps up in the 1960s. Lastly, the modern diplomatic issues we deal with of the Arab-Palestinian conflict, the rise of the Soviet Union, the Arab Spring, the Gulf Wars, and even ISIS have their roots in the First World War. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Why 1914? War erupted in 1914 for four big reasons. First, imperialism and the competition it inspired. As you recall, social Darwinism led many Europeans and the Japanese to embark on empire building across the globe. Second was the increased militarism associated with imperialism. An arms race was touched off in Europe between the great powers of Germany, Great Britain, France, Russia, and Austro-Hungary. Germany, as a result, had built the world's most formidable army. At the same time, a naval race ensued between Great Britain and Germany. Great Britain had the world's most formidable navy, but the Germans were building more ships, and this angered the British. Third, the era had intense nationalism. For instance, Kaiser Wilhelm III and other right-wing leaders in Germany wanted to make Germany a world power, and nationalism had the power to unite people of the same ethnicity, even if they lived in different countries. But nationalism requires intense patriotism to an ideal of a nation, usually denoted or defined by specific ethnic, linguistic, and religious requirements to be considered a member of such a nation. While this can create solidarity, it also creates divisions between those perceived as insiders and those who are outsiders. So this can be a very dangerous concept. Nationalism ties into the next issue, which is that of Slavic identity. The major ethnic group in Russia was called the Slavs, 
There were also Slavs in Austro-Hungary, and especially a region called Bosnia. There were also Slavs in Serbia, located on the tumultuous Balkan Peninsula. For much of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, the Balkans were a powder keg of Europe. And since 1908, Serbia had been expanding and had initiated a movement to liberate the Serbs from foreign rule. This meant trying to liberate Bosnian Serbs, of course. And to facilitate this, the Serbian government had created a covert terrorist organization called the Black Hand. The fifth and final cause of the Great War were the alliance systems. France, Great Britain, and Russia became known as the Triple Entente, also known as the Allies. Opposing them was an alliance called the Central Powers, made up of Germany, Austro-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. These alliances were supposedly made in order to make war less likely. But in fact, they made war more dangerous, since one spark could trigger a confrontation between the Grand Alliances. This is especially dangerous when countries would have secret treaties, like Russia and France, which contained a secret provision in their 1913 Balkan inception scenario. It said that if anything happened, no matter how small in the Balkans, Russia would mobilize its army immediately against Germany, which would then have to mobilize and declare war against the Russians based on military timetables. Once war was declared, Russia and France knew that Germany would have to declare war first on France in order to mobilize in time, and this would then trigger a chain reaction where Austria-Hungary would be forced under their treaty terms to also declare war. So in layman's terms, they are setting up Germany to have to declare war first so that they could claim the moral high ground, which is exactly what happened. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Casus Belli. All it took was a spark to ignite the conflagration that occurred in Europe's powder keg. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was assassinated in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia. The assassin was a young Bosnian called Gavriel Princep, a terrorist trained by the Black Hand. The targeting of Ferdinand was unfortunate, because he was a moderate who actually wanted more autonomy for Austro-Hungarians' minority groups, and he believed in the creation in a greater United States of Austria. But his death doomed any hopes for cooperation and compromise. After Ferdinand's death, Austro-Hungary wanted to punish Serbia for the assassination, but they hesitated because they did not know how Russia would react. Shortly thereafter, Russia committed itself to the defense of Serbia. But then, on July 5th, Germany gave Austro-Hungary a blank check, meaning a promise to support them in all Balkan affairs, even if Russia intervened on Serbia's side. The Germans did not think that war would occur, so much so that the Kaiser was actually away on holiday when this was going on. So what ended up happening was a lower-level official in his State Department was handling these things, 
and it bungled it spectacularly. After Austro-Hungary received the blank check, on July 23rd, they sent Serbia a 48-hour ultimatum in which they demanded, among other things, that Austro-Hungarian officials be allowed to enter Serbia to hunt down Ferdinand's assassin. Now, there's no way that Serbia could agree to this, as it was a violation of Serbian law. So Serbia accepted most of the ultimatum, but with reservations. However, the Austrian diplomat ahead of time had been told that no answer would be sufficient. Thus, on July 28th, Austro-Hungary declared war on Serbia. The question now was, would this be a local war in the Balkans between two nations? But it quickly became apparent that no, this would not be the case because of the alliance system. On July 30th, Russia began mobilizing its massive, disorganized army. And because of military timetables, the very second Russia mobilized, Germany had a ticking clock. Germany interpreted Russia's mobilization as a preparation for war, and thus had an excuse to begin mobilizing its own armies. On August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia, and on August 3rd, they declared war on France. The Balkan inception scenario had worked perfectly. The same day, Germany invaded neutral Belgium. Why is that? Well, please advance to the next slide entitled, German War Plans. Germany's strategic offensive was called the Schlieffen Plan, which had been a military strategy designed in 1905. And here's a hot take. It's probably not a good idea to use military strategies over a decade old. That's no solid foundation for any war. The Schlieffen Plan hinged on the idea that victory must be swift so that Germany had to go on the offensive. But the problem was that Germany faced a war on two fronts. So the plan was to defeat France within six weeks and then move the bulk of the German armies to the Eastern Front in order to fight the slow-moving Russians. Now, this was not a out-of-the-line thinking, as Germany had defeated France pretty quickly in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. But why did Germany invade neutral Belgium? Well, France had begun fortifying its border with Germany ever since their failure in 1871, so the easier invasion route was through neutral Belgium. Thus, German armies crossed into Belgium on August 3rd. Germany did not expect that the next day, on August 4th, Great Britain declared war on Germany. They had pledged their commitment to protecting the Low Countries ever since the 16th century. And this is the point where the Great War arguably became a world war. German armies initially rolled through Belgium, and in the process executed thousands of civilians and burned buildings. And this really mobilized British public opinion in support of the war. As a result, Great Britain sent the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, to France in order to support the Allies the French and British maneuvered their armies in order to intercept the Germans on their way to Paris, and the two sides collided near the Marne River in northern France. The Germans had marched there expecting to win a victory within a week. Yet after six days of bloody fighting over open ground in early September, they retreated into trenches, 
where they would remain for the next four years. In other words, the Schlieffen plan had failed. Both sides now dug in for a bloody stalemate on the Western Front. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Trenches. On the Western Front, trench warfare dominated. The front line of trenches stretched from the North Sea to the Swiss frontier. The trenches were not dug in a straight line. They resembled more of a checkerboard with numerous right angles in order to maximize crossfire. In addition, there were several parallels of support trenches that connected to the second, third, and fourth layers of trenches in case an army had a fallback under an assault. Conditions in the trenches were miserable. It was wet, cold, rats, lice, and rotten corpses. There is one story I always like to tell about how a soldier on campaign was tasked with latrine duty, which basically means cleaning up a long toilet. As he was attempting to clean it, he fell in, but he was so exhausted that he could not get out. His friends attempted to help him, but they too were too tired from the constant fighting and bad food. So as a result, this poor soul ended up drowning in excrement and fecal matter of his own regiment. And I cannot think of a more terrible way to die. Soldiers in this war also suffered from what was called shell shock. We now know that this is actually PTSD and has terrible effects on veterans. But back then, it was hard to understand and was not treated very well. Thus, the veterans after the war would suffer greatly. Between the two sides was a no-man's land, a field of mud, craters, and barbed wire. Occasionally, one side would attack the other, and troops then went, quote, over the top and attempted to cross no-man's land and overtake an enemy position, though they were usually butchered. Offensives always resulted in high casualties because the attackers had to be preceded by an artillery barrage, which merely told the enemy they were coming. Enemy machine gun nests then wiped out entire regiments as they crossed no man's land. Poisonous gas could also be used against you, which would suffocate you or burn your skin off. Thus, attacks were rarely successful as defense with machine guns usually beat away infantry charges. Despite these terrible losses, the war dragged on. Why is that? Well, many people felt that something had to be achieved after all the blood loss. And according to one historian, quote, There is one simple answer. The continuing support of all belligerent peoples, who not only endured the huge military losses, but accepted them without complaint, was why this war lasted so long. Eventually this would change especially in Russia. We'll save that for another slide. Before you move on, click on the hyperlink and look at an example of a charge across no man's land during the First World War. Then, proceed to the next slide, the Battle of the Somme. An example of these horrific battles is the Battle of the Somme. The Allies, led by the British, attacked German positions near the Somme River in northern France. For one week before the attack, the British shelled the Germans with 1.5 million artillery shells. 
Then, on July 1st, 1916, 120,000 British soldiers went over the top. Many British soldiers believed their artillery had neutralized the Germans, and so they tried to carry heavy equipment across the field. But unfortunately, the Germans had dug in too well, and the British lost 21,000 dead in the first day alone. However, despite this blood loss, Allied attacks continued for the next four months. Afterwards, the Somme battlefield turned into a lunar landscape. The Allies ultimately advanced 10 miles and suffered 600,000 casualties in the process, and the Germans suffered approximately the same number of dead and wounded. Many generals believed this was a success, but the common soldier understood it was not war, it was murder. Please advance to the next slide entitled Verdun. One last example of the bloodshed of the Western Front is the Battle of Verdun, nicknamed the Battle That Saved France. From February to December 1916, the Germans pounded French lines over and over again, with 70,000 casualties a month. By the end of the battle, 1.25 million men had become casualties, with at least 750,000 dead. As a result of the battle, morale on both sides tanked. But in the aftermath of the war, Verdun was memorialized as a representation of the worst of human barbarism and the best of human heroism. And there is a great monolism built on the battlefield containing the shattered skeletons of over a million men. Please advance to the next slide entitled Global War. In the First World War, Germany embarked on a great gamble as they targeted British Empire's colonial possessions. They understood that Britain could sacrifice France and the European theater in order to save their colonial possessions in India and the Asian continent. This was a gamble because Germany could also lose her colonies. Now, out in the Pacific, Germany's fleet was small, so it needed to leave her ports that were going to be attacked in order to attack Allied shipping and colonial supply facilities. In response, Great Britain sent out her fleet to destroy these raiders, and the fleets crisscrossed the world's oceans. In the Atlantic, German submarines, also called U-boats, conducted an underwater war against British shipping that would have massive international consequences that I'll discuss in a minute. However, Germany's major fleet was bottled up in the Baltic Sea by the British Royal Navy, which dominated these high seas. Germany wanted to break this deadlock, so she sent her high sea fleet out and met the British at the Battle of Jutland, which was the largest naval battle of the war. It was a costly affair, with 6,000 British and 2,550 German sailors killed. British had lost three battle cruisers, three armored cruisers, and eight destroyers sunk, while the Germans had lost only one battle cruiser one pre-dreadnought, four light cruisers, and five torpedo boats. In response to the high British casualties, an admiral remarked, there's something wrong with our bloody ships today. Despite the fact that the British suffered higher casualties, the Germans were nearly outflanked and were forced to retire back to their naval yards where they would sit out the remainder of the war. 
With the Royal Navy keeping the Germans at bay, the United Kingdom needed to ensure the security of the Pacific Ocean. And so they elicited the support of Imperial Japan and gave her permission to take a bigger role in patrolling East Asian waters. This need for Japanese support will directly lead to their ascendancy in the Pacific. And that power will set Japan on a collision course with the Americans in just 20 years' time. Now, not only did the colonies provide a great deal of raw materials for war industries, but millions of colonial troops took part in every theater of the war. In the French army alone, over 450,000 Africans participated on the Western Front. In troops from the Asian subcontinent, which included Indians, Bengalis, and Pakistanis, numbered around 1.3 million for the British. These troops were critical to winning the war, but they also sowed the seeds of discontent that would eventually lead to decolonization and the end of imperialism. As I mentioned, Germany risked losing everything by expanding the war, and this was evidenced by the war in Africa. The United Kingdom seized their German colonies with South African and indigenous African forces. Thus, German East Africa, now Tanzania and Namibia, as well as Togoland, were lost to the Germans. This was a costly affair for all sides. This is evidenced when a wily German general, Paul von Leto Vorbuch, kept the British chasing him in East Africa for the entire war. While he was military brilliant, it ultimately cost over 350,000 African civilians in the East African campaign alone. Again, Great Britain had leaned on her colonies to defeat Germany, though this will create the discontent that directly led to the independence movements throughout Africa. Please advance to the next slide entitled Global War Part 2. So just to recap, we have a European theater, an African theater, as well as war on the high seas, and a war in the Middle East. Here, Germany's allies, the Ottoman Empire, modern-day Turkey, faced Arab revolts as well as British and French invasions. The Allies wanted to control the Mediterranean in order to gain access to the Black Sea where they could link up with their Russian allies. But in order to do that, you needed to control the important waterway and land connections between Europe and Asia, which is called the Dardanelles Straits. In order to do this, the Allies invaded Gallipoli, basically the invasion of Turkey. But this was a disaster. British ships were shelled by coastal forts, and Anzac troopers, men from Australia and New Zealand, were butchered in assaults on entrenched Turkish positions. Their experience will lead to a solidification and a separate national identity of Australians and New Zealanders. In the end, the British would withdraw, leaving the Turks and their general, Mustafa Gamal, victorious. Gamal will ride this to victory and in the end create an independent Turkey and become Ataturk, meaning the father of the Turks. Now the Ottomans, like most empires, had much internal discontent. And one of the most upset peoples of this region were the Arabs. They were aided by a young British officer nicknamed Lawrence of Arabia 
who helped push the Arabian Revolt to success. He worked with one specific tribe, the House of Saud, and because of their help in this war, they were ultimately given control of Arabia and the holy sites, and that is why they are now called Saudi Arabia. Some British officials, and some Saudi Arabians, argue that the House of Saud should be able to control parts of Iraq and the Levant. By the way, when I use the term the Levant, I'm referring to the modern-day region of Lebanon and parts of Israel. Ultimately, the Arabs successfully disrupted Turkish operations and gained control of their homeland, but the promises for their extended territory were never realized. This is because, in October 1917, the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, promised to establish a, quote, national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, and this was known as the Balfour Declaration. As a result, many Jews would continue to believe in the concept of Zionism, meaning a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and one that enticed many Jews to immigrate there. Unfortunately, Balfour had made this promise without consulting local Arabs, and the House of Saud was very upset as a result, since they could not control Jerusalem. Needless to say, this issue is still a major problem in the 21st century. After British forces successfully captured Baghdad in December 1916, they took Jerusalem the following year, which had been controlled by the Ottomans. And this would embark on a 30-year period of British dominance in Israel. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Genocide. You should recall that we described nationalism as an extreme patriotism in a belief that nation-states should be delineated based on language, religion, and ethnicity for inclusion in the body politic, meaning having political rights. So, for instance, if you aren't a German speaker in Germany, you're not a citizen. Well, this was the same with the Ottomans. Turkey was beset with external and internal conflicts. See, we tend to generalize the Middle East as all Arabic, but in fact there are many ethnic groups. Turks, Assyrians, Kurds, Persians, Armenians, Pontiac Greeks, Jews, and various smaller tribal affiliations. When this war occurs, the Turks got worried about their non-Turkish peoples advocating for more rights and even perhaps helping the enemy. You see, for instance, the Armenians living on the border with Russia decided to help some units of the Russian army in their fight in the Caucasus. As a result of this fear, the Turks targeted Armenians and other minority groups leading to a humanitarian disaster. Please click on the YouTube link on the PowerPoint and watch the BBC series The First World War, episode Jihad, minute 1628 to minute 2136. Okay, so did you go and watch it? It is absolutely horrifying. As a result of the Armenian genocide, at least one million Armenians were systematically murdered and this was a purposeful Turkish policy meant to destroy the Armenians as a people. But the Turks did not stop there, as they also committed the Assyrian Genocide and then the Greek and Pontiac Genocide. Each 
lost at least a million people. So that's three million dead civilians. One of the great things about America is even if we have problems with our history, we're at least allowed to talk about it, to teach it. But it is illegal to publish or discuss any of the Armenian, Greek, or Assyrian genocides in Turkey, as you will be arrested and sent to jail for, quote, insulting Turkishness. Many want to formally recognize the Armenian genocide, but to this day, Turkey threatens diplomatic relations if you do. By the end of the war, the Greeks, the Turks, and other groups conducted large-scale population expulsions, where Turkish descendants in the Balkans were expelled, as well as Greeks, Armenians, and Assyrians from Asia Minor. As we will see, population transfers will continue throughout the 20th century as nation-states decide to obliterate minorities rather than grapple with the issues of rights and citizenship. So many of you may be asking, this is a U.S. history course. Why talk so much about genocide in the Middle East? Because we have a large amount of Armenians in the United States as American citizens, like the Kardashians. We also have a sizable amount of Greeks and Assyrians in the United States. Also, we are all human, and genocide should be abhorrent and loudly condemned. Lastly, this is just one of several genocides throughout the century, and these things must be understood so they can be prevented in the future. Thus, we should all stand up for the innocent. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're staying safe and making smart decisions. Be sure to listen to part two of The Great War. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.